0: this is the 36th episode of kimchi slaps by your funny on where i tell you what slaps for the week i finally uh got a slapper y'all i think if you saw the video um you see me doing it like uh when i interview people but sadly whenever i do this over zoom the slapper i don't know it doesn't like, you, it mutes the sound of the slapper. And I, I, I'm not a technical person, so I'm going to have to figure out how I can do the Zoom without having those issues. But anywho, uh, I'm taking a break this week from uh, doing a Zoom interview and getting back to reading. I'm not quite sure. No, no, no. I, I, I think I do like doing the Zooms. But I also like doing the readings. And somebody that I talked to, a listener, Mika, uh, was like, I like both. So, you know, maybe I won't put this pressure on myself to get a guess and occasionally do the readings, back to the readings. But I also wanted to take this moment and just reflect on some thoughts. It's April uh april i was looking up what month april is all about april is about is the earth month stress awareness month alcohol awareness month national donate month and autism acceptance month so a lot of things in april uh obviously we have to be better to the planet and all that but you know stress awareness that i feel like that's like me on the daily. <laughs> um, and alcohol awareness, same, on the daily. But uh, I am also looking very much forward to May, which is AAPI month. And there's a lot of things happening in the works. Um, one of the biggest things is my children's book. For those of you been that have been following me, The Adventures of Panda and Penguin Which is um, inspired by my wonderful boys Um, I'm really excited about it Uh, And just the idea of actually, you know, everybody has thoughts about getting something done, right, but it's something else to go through all the steps and come out with you know a product like the end result and um we're still we're still in the woods or what is it think of, in the thick of things um I couldn't find uh like a publishing company that you know so I got this great advice from a writer who is very experienced and published, and all the you know, big cosmopolitan like, bigly printing publications, right? Books and all the stuff. But, um, and she's wonderful, she was very kind, but she is a white woman, and I just for me, um, I feel, even, but and she, her advice was that with the platform I have, I would have so much more access, um, because that's what they look for her to have a bigger platform to, and if she did have it, then I guess, um, I mean, that's what she's trying to build for herself, even though she's a very, uh, experienced writer, she's realizing, you know, having a platform is a social currency. And so looking at me, when I told her I wanted to write a book, children's book, she's like, oh my gosh, with your platform, you would, you would be able to, um, you know, garner the attention of publication companies. And sadly, that has not been the case. I mean, I did talk to um, one in particular that I thought would be a good fit, but the other problem with publication companies when you work with an actual um, book publisher is like, one, they take a long time to approve so many things, right? Two and I think well, actually one and two. I mean it's basically the same. They wanna tell you what to do. And I I like took in a lot of I don't mind. Of course I don't. I'm open to constructive criticism. But um, when people were asking me to like change things, it got so changed. The story like I hated the story. I mean I didn't hate it, but I started to not. Here's how I came with the children's book. Oh my gosh, I'm all over the place. I think I'm, well, I'm still talking about the children's book, so maybe I'm on a, it's the same thought, but, um, the story just came to me. Like, I was on the airplane, and I was thinking, I don't know how, but I was kind of like, you know, what do I want to tell my kids? Um, that... I don't know if it came organic. I mean, I know that I was thinking about it, like, in terms of, like, as a parent, and also the thought of, what well, could I have been had my parents encouraged me to think without boundaries for myself? You know? Because I was always taught to, like, my parents pretty much preached the model minority concept to me. They, Especially my mom like you have to put your head down and work you have to excel for you to be mediocre in this American space white she saw it predominantly white and she was like in order to stand up To even be stand out or like to be recognized in this white space You have to excel and even when you excel you're gonna be seen as mediocre because you're Asian like she and this is coming from my parents had a very hard time as immigrants. And um, you know, that was drilled into me day in, day out. Like I didn't have time to mess around. Um, I didn't have time to, you know, be a kid essentially. And I I mean, of course this thought has been like going, Over the years but there was a moment of like just such direct inspiration like I was on the plane I was like oh my god I gotta write write this down I mean I've always been floating the idea of writing a book a memoir or seemed too daunting even though everybody always tells me that I should and I think that I want to but it just seems like such a huge task but then I was like, well, what if I write a children's book, you know, for my kids, what I would have wanted to be told as a child. And there's so many things, right? But essentially, you know, what I think about is like, why I can't just be like, um, you know, I'm diagnosed with general anxiety disorder but I also think it's ADHD and you know, who knows exactly what is what, right? Cause they're all kind of interconnected, gender anxiety or uh, depression, PTSD. Um, I definitely suffer from that category. And I think about, for me, someone like me, I wonder what, I do think about like what, if I had a nurturing childhood, what how would I look I I, I I think about that a lot I think it's weird to well no it's not weird I mean if you're if you get to a place I'm 41 now if you get to a place where you're thinking I'm broken you think about what would it look like if I hadn't been so traumatized as a child and had a more um less you know painful journey especially in the developmental years i do you know i took psychology and i mean anybody that takes basic basic psychology knows that uh the developmental years from you know birth to like seven is so crucial so Hold on one second, my kid, sorry. Uh, my kid of course barged in and had a question and you know, real life, that's how it goes. Uh, yeah, Anywho, I wrote it all out. I decided to go with a self-publisher that will help you with the technical aspect of, I mean, you have to pay them basically. And so I, and they do all the, um, you know, putting it on sale formatting and putting, getting it ready to sell on Amazon. So me and Tremaine, my artist, uh, illustrator slash bro slash friend, we, I think he's wrapping up the pages as I speak and we're trying to get this thing ready. For me, I would love, 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 love to gift this book to my children. On May 5th, it's actually, May 5th is Children's Day for Koreans. And I remember as a kid looking forward to that day, but I don't remember it ever being good. <laughs> or in terms of, you know, usually kids look forward to it, because they get. It's kind of like uh, Christmas For kids, you get gifts, but I can't recall ever getting a gift that I was able to enjoy. I mean, it's, of course, and I do wonder, it's not about the materialistic thing. I just don't even have, I don't know. I can't tell if my memory is bad or if... My brain was like, you know what, this shit is terrible, so (laughs) these memories are terrible, so I'm just going to let you not I don't know if it was being protective or if I just had bad memory. I'm sure it's somewhere in between both, but I am looking forward to all that May. I do feel like, you know, what is it saying? Uh, April showers bring May flowers. That's what I feel like. I'm at right now and there's this weird feeling of like like something in the air and I feel nervous to say it and speak it but I do feel like big things are kind of happening for me and I don't know like it's sort of it's a good energy like like I'm getting tinglings and I I feel like I have to just own it and be able to receive it. But it's also kind of scary, you know, cause it's never just um, one thing, right? It's like with, oh, what is that? Spider-Man saying with great responsibility. No, with great power comes great responsibility. Not that I'm going to get power, but um I do feel like opportunities could be coming my way, but I'm also kind of nervous. Like, I don't want to screw it up. (laughs) I'm trying to be in tune with the universe. Um, Yeah. But anywho, I want us to finish this book. Cause it's a wonderful book so you want to talk about race by iji e. omao luo and let's get into it oh shit this chapter six where i left off oh we're gonna get really into it is police brutality really about race chapter six wow I didn't know, um, this is. (laughs) I flipped open the book, like thinking, okay, let's just pick up where we left off. And I didn't realize this is the chapter we're gonna get into, but hey, let's do it. Just got pulled over for driving while black. Here's hoping I get out of it safely. This was a tweet I sent out July of 2015, along with the photo of the officer who had pulled me over. I was driving with my two brothers, on the freeway moving with traffic slightly over the speed limit the ticket given put me at one mile over the speed limit i watched the motorcycle cop cross three lanes of traffic to pick my vehicle out of the crowd slowing all traffic to guide me back to the other side of the busy freeway as we waited for the officer to walk up to the passenger side window my brothers and i tried to calm ourselves down just stay calm don't ask any questions we'll be okay My brother Ahan repeated in a voice that betrayed his fear and also his determination to see us all get through this encounter intact. It was then I sent the alert to friends and family. The tweet I sent once, we were stopped on the side of the road, is similar to what many of my black friends send out these days when they are pulled over. This message is sent out not so much to complain but to notify friends and family that if something should happen to you in the near future, this was the likely cause. As he, as we've learned, witnesses are the only defense people of color seem to have against police brutality, and often even that isn't enough. Our encounter with the officer was over quickly, although it felt like an eternity. He was brus Oh, he was brusque and professional while we sat silently in fear, watching our hands to make sure they didn't betray us with any sudden movements, any threatening gestures. Aham's hand shook as he opened my glove compartment to get my vehicle registration, slowly and clearly telling the officer, I'm reaching into the glove compartment now and waiting for the officers not before moving. Watching my brother carefully reach for the glove compartment, I was reminded of one time when I was pulled over at 16. I quickly reached for the glove compartment and, when asked for license and, and, and registration, and the officer's hand immediately went to his gun as he yelled, Stop! As I sat there, frozen in fear, he proceeded to lecture me to never reach for anything in front of a cop without saying what I was doing first. That's a good way to get yourself shot, young lady, he said to me. Then he nodded and took his hands off his gun, satisfied with the favor he had done me by not shooting a 16 year old girl for reaching for her identification. But this officer did not reach out, did not shout out, or reach for his gun. He simply wrote out my ticket and then drove off. When the officer was gone, we sat for a moment and collected ourselves. We looked at each other, grateful that we were all okay. I sent out a tweet letting everyone know that we were okay. And then I started driving again, dreading the rest of the long trip that moments earlier we had been looking forward to and driving slowly enough to anger everyone else on the road. When I got home, I had dozens of messages waiting for... Me from friends and community members voicing concern at my first tweet and relief at my second. Many of those messages came from other Black people who related to the fear behind my initial tweet and share their own stories of their DWBs driving while Black. But there were plenty of other messages from people wondering why I had brought race into it at all. Why do you assume it's about race? You have no proof it was anything other than a traffic stop. Wouldn't it be better to just assume good intentions on behalf of the cop? How do you know it's about race? And the truth is, I didn't know it was about race, and I still don't. There's a very good chance that I just won that horrible lottery and my car with three black individuals were the one car to be pulled over out of pure luck. Maybe we're all just really unlucky as a race. And while I may have been pulled over due to the lack of the draw, the thing is, I can't ask why. The last time my brother asked the cop why he'd, pulled over, he'd been pulled over, the cop leaned into the vehicle and asked ominously, are we going to have a problem here? So he doesn't ask anymore. And after seeing what happened to Sandra Bland, I certainly don't ask either. If we don't know if each individual encounter with police officers is truly about race, and if we can't safely ask, why do we talk about police brutality like it is about race? At its core, the police brutality is about power and corruption. Police brutality is about the intersection of fear and guns. Police brutality is about accountability. And the power and corruption that enable police brutality put all citizens of every race at risk. But it does not put us at risk equally. And the numbers bear that out my fear as a black driver is real. The fact is that black drivers are 23% more likely to be pulled over than white drivers, between 1.5 and 5 times more likely to be searched, while shown to be less likely than whites to turn up contraband in these searches, and more likely to be ticketed and arrested in those stops. This increase in stops, searches and arrests also lead to a 3.5 to four times higher probability that Black people will be killed by cops. This increase is the same number for Native Americans interacting with police, a shamefully underreported statistic. Even when we aren't arrested or killed, we are still more likely to be abused and dehumanized in our stops. A 2016 review of 13-month periods showed that Oakland police handcuffed 1,466 black people in non-arrest traffic stops, and only 72 white people. And a 2016 study by the Center for Policing Equity found that blacks were almost four times more likely to be subject to force from police, including force by hand, such as hitting and choking, pepper spray, taser, and gun, than white people. So maybe that time I got pulled over wasn't about race. Maybe that time I'd been pulled over before, that wasn't about race. Maybe even the time before that. But those who demand the smoking gun of a racial slur or a swastika or burning cross before they will believe that an individual encounter with the police might be about race are ignoring what we know and what the numbers are bearing out. Something is going on and it is not right. We are being targeted. And you can try to explain one away one statistic due to geography, one away due to income. You can find reasons for numbers all day. But the fact remains, all across the country, in every type of neighborhood, people of color are being disproportionately criminalized. This is not all in our heads. When we first learn to drive, it's with the same excitement of anybody else newly behind the wheel. A bit of fear mixed with a sense of freedom and power. But while our white friends quickly settle into the mundanity of the daily commute, we never get the sense of ease. The first time I was pulled over was at age 16 for going five miles over the speed limit in a wealthy white neighborhood. I explained that I hadn't realized the speed limit had been recently lowered, but the cop wanted to know if I was drunk, if I was on drugs, what he would find if he looked in my trunk. I believe I answered, snacks. A few months later, I was pulled over for not coming to a complete stop on a suburban road, empty of all traffic except for me and the officer. I'd been stopped for having my vehicle tabs expire by one day, even though it was still within the month indicated on the tab, which meant that the officer was scanning my plates for the hell of it. Time and time again, the question I was asked were along the same lines, what are you doing in this neighborhood? Have you been drinking? Do I smell marijuana? do you have any illegal substances or weapons in your car? I know it sounds silly, but it surprised me every time. I've never been a big drinker. I've never been driven drunk, and weed never did anything for me. I have no criminal net record, no past indication of dangerous driving or violence. And yet, by the age of 18, I couldn't shake the feeling that cops were out to get me. And this experience even Is even worse for many black men and for those who do have criminal records that give cops even more reason to harass them. Like myself, most people of color I know do not enjoy driving. We have moments where we forget what our blackness means behind the wheel, when we are enjoying a great song on the radio or leaving a fun event. For a few moments we are driving like any other carefree American. but then our pulses rise at the sight of an officer on the street. Will this be the time? The moment the lights on the police cruiser go on, we know that's for us. We are watching our speed and using our turn signals, and yet when the lights go on, we pull that there is no other car that officer is going to pull up behind than ours. And we pray that our paperwork is all legit, and that officer won't be afraid of us, and that we won't make the wrong moves or say the wrong things. We hope that all we got out of this encounter is a ticket and a nervous stomach. And I'm not sure what's worse, the fear and anxiety and fatigue brought on by yet another encounter with an officer that you are hoping and praying to make it out of intact. Or the never-ending denial by the rest of society of the fear and anxiety and fatigue you experience as a valid response to the near constant reminder that those assigned and empowered to protect you see your color as evidence of wrongdoing and could take your freedom or even your life at any time with no recourse. In this individualist nation, we like to believe that systemic racism doesn't exist. We like to believe that if there are racist cops, they are individual bad eggs acting out on their own. And with this belief, we are forced to prove that each individual encounter with the police is definitively racist or is or it is tossed out completely as mere coincidence and so instead of a system imbued with the racism and oppression of greater society instead of a system plagued by unchecked implicit bias inadequate training lack of accountability racist quotas cultural insensitivity lack of diversity and lack of transparency. We are told we have a collection of individuals doing their best to serve and protect outside of a few bad apples acting completely on their own. And there's nothing we can do about it other than address those bad apples once it's been thoroughly proven proven that the officer in question is indeed a bad apple. So acknowledging us, believing us, means challenging everything you believe about race in this country. And I know that is a very big ask. I know that this is a painful and scary process. I know that it's hard to believe that the people you look to for safety and security are the same people who are causing us so much harm. But I'm not lying, and I'm not delusional. I am scared, and I am hurting, and we are dying. And I really, really need you to believe me. Few subjects shed greater light on the racial divide in the U.S. and the subject of police brutality. Gallup's polls of white and black Americans on their opinions of police in the U.S. show that more than double the percentage of whites versus blacks have confidence in police or view them as honest and ethical. And whites are twice as likely as blacks to believe that police treat racial minorities fairly. But this same... Racial disparity in our feelings about the police is matched by disparities in our encounters with police. As described earlier in the chapter, people of color are more likely to be stopped by police, arrested by police, assaulted by police, and killed by police. When we look at the difference in opinion towards and confidence in our police force, along with the difference in experiences with our police force, it's easy to wonder how it's possible that we all live in the same country. If we want to understand how experiences and sentiment between police and communities of different races could be so different, we must first understand the historical relationship between police forces and communities of color. There has not been a time in American history where our police force had not had a contentious and often violent relationship with communities of color. Our police forces were born from night patrols who had the principal task of controlling Black and Native American population in New England, and slave patrols, who had the principal task of catching escaped black slaves and sending them back to slave masters. After the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, catching and re black people became the job of night patrols as well. And that job was continued on after the night patrols were turned into the country's first police forces. Our early American police forces existed not only to combat crime but also to return Black Americans to slavery and control and intimidate free Black populations. Police were rightfully feared and loathed by Black Americans in North and South. In the brutal and bloody horror of the post-Reconstruction South, local police sometimes joined in on terrorizing of Black communities that left thousands of Black Americans dead in the South, through the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights Movement, it was well known locally that many police officers were also members of the Cuckoo Klan. Through much of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, American police forces were one of the greatest threats to the safety of Black Americans. Our police force was not created to serve Black Americans, it was created to police black Americans and serve white Americans. This is why even when police were donning white hoods and riding out at night to burn crosses on the lawns of black families, white families could still look at them with respect and trust. Our police forces had starkly different roles within the white community that they were responsible to. Police abuse and oppression of people of color has not stopped at black Americans. Hispanic, and Native American populations have also long been the recipients of higher rates of arrest, assault, and the death at the hands of police. And police have been used throughout history to intimidate, punish, and silence activists and protesters in all minority racial and ethnic groups. Our police forces were created not to protect Americans of color, but to control Americans of color, People of color were seen by the police as inconvenience at best and a threat at worst, but never as people to protect and serve. This desire to control the behavior of people of color among with the disregard for the lives of people of color has been woven throughout the history of American policing. This general attitude towards communities of color was also built into the police training and police culture and strong remnants of that remain today. It is understandable then that the fear and mistrust of police are woven throughout the history of communities of color, especially black America. The trauma from police brutality, Has been felt over multiple generations the generational wounds of police brutality and oppression have not healed because the brutality and oppression is still happening even if cops are no longer wearing white hoods or letting their attack dogs loose on us yes our police officers are far less likely to be seen joining lynch mobs and far fewer of them explicitly see controlling the black population as their main job but Our police force is much larger and much more more powerful than it was in the past, and the narratives and organizational structure that promoted the terrorizing of Black Americans and communities of color in the past protect the harassment and brutality against Black Americans and communities of color in the present. This is not to say that the majority of our officers are racist, hateful monsters. When looking at anti-Black bias in police actions, we are looking at the product a police cultural history that has always viewed Black Americans as adversaries, and a popular culture that has always portrayed Black Americans as violent criminals not worthy of protection. From our books, TV shows, movies, to our crimes, focus on news programs, a narrative of Black Brute as strong now as it was when Birth of a Nation was released to wide acclaim in 1915. We hear this repeated in the language of our TV pundits and our politicians. Who will do something about this inner city crime? Who will keep our streets safe from these thugs? Who will protect us from these super predators? The belief that black people still need to be controlled by police is promoted by our politicians and funded by our taxpayers. The belief that black people and people of color are more dangerous, unpredictable, and violent is not something that I believe most police officers and other Americans even know they believe, but they do believe it deep down. This implicit bias against people of color is so insidious that not even people of color are exempt from having it, which is why, yes, even police officers of color can show bias against civilians of color. Implicit bias is the belief that sit in the back of your brain and inform your actions without your explicit knowledge. In times of stress, these unexamined beliefs can prove deadly. And a large portion of police encounters with people of color, or with any people for that matter, are high-stress situations where that implicit bias is more likely to take over at any hint of unpredictability or escalation and flood an officer with irrational fear. When an officer shoots an unarmed black man and says he feared for his life, I believe it. But that fear itself is often racist and unfounded. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that there is a higher crime in some cities where larger majority populations live. Yes, black men are most likely to commit a violent offense than white men. No, this is not black on black or brown on brown crime. These terms are 100% racist. It's crime. We don't call crime that happens in white communities white-on-white crime, even though the majority of crimes against white people are perpetrated by other white people. Crime is a problem within communities, and communities with higher poverty, fewer jobs, and less infrastructure are going to have higher crime, regardless of race. When the average Black American has 1 the net worth and the average Hispanic American has one tenth the net worth of the average white American, and when poverty rates among Native Americans is over three times that of whites, it is a strong bet that neighbors often neighbors of color are more likely to be poor neighborhoods with higher crimes and that higher priced neighborhoods with easier access to jobs and more funding for education that lead to less crime would be more likely to be populated by comparatively wealthier white people. Crime in communities of color is often compounded by the contentious relationship with police. Nobody wants a solution to crime in black communities more than black people do. They are the people most impacted by it. But when you cannot trust the police to protect you, what do you who do you call to report illegal activity? When a crime happens, why would you cooperate with a police force that you do not trust to enforce the law without bias or excessive force? Police as an extension of American society are more likely to view people of color as dangerous, and people of color are more likely to put, view police as corrupt. This may seem on the surface as simple miscommunication, old grudges that just need to be let go, This is often how it is discussed by the media and by our politicians. If we could only come together, we'd see that we're all good people. But these simple platitudes ignore the power dynamic at play in people of color's interaction with police. Just about every police officer that a person of color encounters will be armed, not just with a gun, but with the full force of a justice system that has shown just as much bias against people of color as the police have. If someone is going to be harmed or killed in a police encounter, the numbers show that it is most likely going to be civilian, not the police. When the harm is the result of an unjustified use of force against a civilian of color, most people of color know that the police officer involved will likely face Very few consequences, if any. Police officers know this too. This is known in every encounter with police, every traffic stop, every domestic violence call, every welfare call. People of color do need and desperately want an effective police force to help keep their communities safe. And in order for a police force to be effective, it has to earn the trust of its people. But to those who only scratch the surface, to those who do not investigate their simplistic opinions about the root cause of crime in inner cities and the animosity between the police forces and communities of color, the answer is simply more policing. But what we need is different policing. Policing not steep from root to flower in the need to control people of color. If you are not a person of color, your relationship with these same officers is likely vastly different. The assumption that police officers were serve and protect the white community has existed as long as the assumption that police officers would control people of color. The long, well-established history of violence towards and oppression of the white community simply does not exist in American policing. This does not mean that white Americans were never subject to abuse by police, not at all. A look at our police force's history of abuse and persecution of the LGBT community is one of the many examples that show otherwise. But by and large, even with occasional abuses of white civilians by police, most white Americans are confident that the criminal justice system is still to be trusted. Our police force is integral integral to white American feelings of safety and security in their communities. They are a valued part of the community. To question the integrity of the police is to question the safety of the communities they serve, and that can be very unsettling to many who rely on that feeling of protection for their peace of mind. But that comfort and security that many white Americans have felt with their police is built on the oppression of people of color by the Those same police. The police don't just keep white communities safe, they save white communities from the evils of inner city crime. They are the heroes who keep Compton and Compton and Chicago and Chicago. Without the police, your white community would be just like those communities. And it is white America's love of police that separates you from a crime ridden ghetto. This is not something that all white Americans explicitly think or say, but it is the overwhelming narrative of our culture, our politicians and our police forces. And that narrative shapes a lot of our conversations around policing and race. When talking about police brutality, it is important to remember that the police force can be trustworthy public servants to one community and oppressors to another community just as we can live in a country that promotes prosperity for some and poverty for others. And this can be the same police force in the same country without making any of these realities invalid. While numbers show that people of color are disproportionately targeted by police, they also show that white people in general trust and admire police. But these statistics are true. Both these statistics are true. But our goal should be to ensure that people of all races are able to feel safe and secure with our police forces. We need to recognize that the fear that people of color have of police is not merely rooted in the feeling or culture, but in the separate and violent history that our police forces have with communities of color. We must realize that there are two very different realities of how our police interact with white communities and with communities of color. And both of those realities have their own structure and history. We cannot address police brutality if we are not willing to recognize these differences and address the entirety of the specific history and structure of the police interactions with communities of color. It is important when talking about police brutality to stand secure in your experience without trying to override the experiences of other communities with police. What has happened to you is valid and true, but it is not what has happened to everyone. The experience of white communities with police are real, and the experience of communities of color with people are real, but they are far from the same. And while it is important to recognize these different viewpoints, we must remember this. If you do trust and value your police force and you also believe in justice and equality for people of color, you will not see the lack of trust on behalf of communities of color as simply a difference of opinion. You will instead expect your police force to earn the respect and trust of communities of color by providing them with the same level of service that you enjoy. People of color are not asking white people to believe their experiences so that they will fear the police as much as people of color do. They're asking because they want white people to join them in demanding their right to be able to trust the police like white people do. Woo! That is deep, y'all. I hope um, this episode didn't find you on a rough day, because that's a tough one to kind of simmer in your head. But yeah, I... I get asked a lot why I don't go after um, recently. I mean, recently, but it also happens Mm -hmm. all the time. I get called out for not speak on, speaking on black on Asian crimes. And that's exactly why, the, the as the author said, when you call it black on, on black crime, that immediately is racist. Because you don't talk about white on white crime like that. You know what I mean? And when people want to point out to me, well, black people are the... If you look at the Asian hate crimes, it's the black people that are doing the ha- Asian hate criming. And... Immediately, you have to recognize that's racist. Um, But you have to, and and with any problem, you have to look at the root cause, right? Why? One, you have to also look at media coverage, and it's always unfairly promoting, um, you know, a violent black man. That's just their go-to, that makes for better um, storytelling for media. And the other thing is, why are Black people, and usually these, these crimes are committed by homeless, mentally unstable people. Why is it that so many Black people are, um, don't have homes, don't, are out in the street mentally unstable? You, you you can't just look at the end result and not look at What got us there, right? Anyways, but you know a lot of times I'm like that's not what you actually care about You don't care about Asian people to bring that up If you care truly about Asian people the focus is you know, let's uh, Let's fight the stereotypes that are getting Asian people targeted not well, it's only the black people that are doing this. That's one, not true. Uh, There was a crime report. I mean, who am I even saying this to? I know the people that are listening to me already know the facts. Um, But anyways, ah, if we can't uplift the black community, there will not be justice for any other communities of color. We have to start from what, Where racism is rooted in and the racism is rooted in this country starting out so black and white and if we can't get to the bottom of that there is no justice for all people of color that's why I like the term BIPOC because I I think it's a good reminder to say we have to put the black and indigenous folks in the front of this fight because that's what this country was built on the enslavement and conquering of natives and if we can't get justice for them there is no justice for any communities of color um anyways that's that's my opinion (laughs) from learning real american history which is what our children would be able to get if critical race theory was inclusive but that's A whole nother topic, isn't it? Uh, Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am looking to get a Zoom guest lined up for the next, next one. I would love feedback if you like just going back and forth of these different methods or if you would like to just hear me do Zoom interviews from now on. Let me know, okay? Until next time, stay healthy, stay blessed mentally, physically, spiritually. Remember, y'all, that's what matters in life.